Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... Both of us, we've funded it completely ourselves. From a mix of savings and and family, we put everything on the line. You know, I think everyone talks about how did you fund it to get going, but then how do you keep a lifestyle and school fees going is probably the other part to that question. So we believed in it from the beginning. When two young women created a brand of sunscreen, they hoped but never imagined that in just a few years, their product would end up not only disrupting long-established sunscreens that were well-entrenched in the market, but that their product would get much-desired shelf space in the worldwide Sephora beauty department stores and feature on massive e-commerce platforms like the Iconic and Adore Beauty and now be sold in several countries around the globe. But that's what's happened to Ultraviolet, or Vi for short, as the founders personify their brand as a her, and that's in just three and a half years. What a whirlwind startup journey for entrepreneurs Ava Chandler-Matthews and Beck Jefford, co-creators and founders of the hot Aussie sunscreen brand Ultraviolet. How exactly did they build it? Well, there are a few key ingredients to their secret sauce. Take a listen to part one of my chat with Ava Chandler-Matthews and Beck Jefford. Ava Chandler-Matthews and Beck Jefford, founders of Ultraviolet, welcome to Build It, They'll Come. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Helen. Lovely to be here. Thanks so much for having us. Now, you started Ultraviolet less than, what, three and a half years ago. You already have a strong, supportive following. But for those who don't know Ultraviolet, paint us a picture of what it is today, what you sell, where you sell it, and how big you are. Sure. So Ultraviolet launched in January 2019. So yeah, just over three years ago, but obviously we started her a couple of years before then, really doing the product development, the brand development and and starting to piece things together. So fast forward today, 2022, Ultraviolet is in Australia. It's our biggest market. We have our own e-commerce channel. We sell through some amazing retail partners such as Adore Beauty, Sephora in Australia and New Zealand, The Iconic, and also Style Runner which are our, make up our Australian retailers. And then internationally, we launched into the UK last year and really were blown away by, um, I guess, the response over there. So the UK, we've got some some really fun retailers. We just added Harrods to the mix, but Space NK is our biggest retailer over there. Here we are in February 2022. We're about to launch into a number of international markets this year with Sephora. So uh, the international game is is where we're at at the moment. Oh, look, that's it's extraordinary. So did you say you launched in the UK last year in COVID year two, Ava? Is that, I mean, were you insane? <laughs> yeah, it's COVID year two. We, we actually wanted to launch COVID year one, but it didn't end up happening for us, which was obviously for the best. We did end up launching in COVID-1 into Joyce and Lane Crawford in Hong Kong. Sorry, just for those who don't know, what is Joyce? And Lane Crawford is obviously the big department store in Hong Kong, but what's Joyce? 
Joyce is a beauty kind of retailer owned by Lane Crawford Boutique with, you know, luxury premium brands. So we launched into both of them in 2020. So, sorry, do you sell physical product through them or is it through their online offerings? We sell physical product through their stores. Fantastic. And how's that been going so far? It's been going really well, you know, especially as Beck mentioned, the UK, you know, you said are you crazy to launch in COVID year two? But it was fantastic. It was, we couldn't have imagined a better response to the to the brand launching in the UK. And we were, we were kind of surprised, especially given, you know, London was kind of in and out of lockdown with similar kind of restrictions to, to what we were seeing in Australia. But the brand was absolutely flying and we're the number one brand in their sun category. We kind of grew their entire sun category as a result of launching. So I think that was obviously us launching into there, but also some industry-specific things that, that we were seeing at the time and definitely some growth in education and awareness of how SBF needs to be an everyday product. You essentially began making and selling sunscreen online, but let's start with why sunscreen? Beck, why did you go with that product? As there are some very large established brands with good distribution outlets who do very well and have very good quality products. Well, yeah, again, we like to do things a bit differently at Ultraviolet. And, you know, the, what probably the worst $2,000 we've spent to date on this business is buying a market research report on the sun market in Australia, <laughs> because all it did was tell us where we don't want to play. And I think that highlights the opportunity. So we we looked at the sun category in Australia. It was mostly sold through mass channels. Chemists and supermarkets. Supermarkets. Yep. Yeah, yep. and pharmacies. That was the biggest channel for, for purchasing. Ava and I both had a background in beauty and, you know, prestige beauty at the premium end. And we could see in beauty and hear from beauty consumers that they were being told by dermatologists and, and skincare specialists that they needed to incorporate sun protection into their daily skincare routine. Yet the offering for those women and men was, was not up to par of what they were purchasing with the rest of their skincare routine. So it really did seem like a gaping opportunity for us to really bring the market to where the consumer was and position sun in a way that we hadn't seen, positioned on a global scale before, which was really at a prestige level. It was positioning it as part of a skincare routine and giving you a product akin to buying a moisturizer or a cleanser. So where you might buy by skin type or by outcome and not just by pump pack or SPF rating. So really positioning sun as a skincare product. So Ava, I guess what Beck's been saying is there you felt there was really a gap in the market to exploit this thing about wearing a sunscreen every day, but not putting one on separate to everything else. And then suddenly you find, which I must say, I've found over the years that the fabulous brands for your body in sunscreen don't sort of work on many people's faces. And suddenly you find you're having an outbreak of of spots or what have you, and it just feels yucky and gluggy. So are you saying you really went for that gap in the market? Yeah, absolutely. We've been in the beauty industry for many years and we really went for more of that beauty and skincare angle. We actually call our products skin screens because they're the perfect combination of skincare and sunscreen. And, And instead of adding to people's routines, because we kind of didn't want to do that, but we know SPF is kind of the one non-negotiable that you need to be wearing every day. We thought, you know, for people who 
might not want to wear a moisturizer and a sunscreen or people are a bit more lo-fi. We added, you know, a whole bunch of skincare actives like vitamin C and some really potent hydrators into our formulation. So if you were a bit more lo-fi, you could get away with only wearing our product. So just let me understand it. You're saying that if, say, I use your product, they don't necessarily need a moisturizer to look after their skin as well? It would depend on their skin. Right. So if they were quite dry or dehydrated, they probably would. Sure. You know, for example, I, I wear a moisturizer because I'm I like hydration and I like to be glowy. But if you're kind of potentially on the oilier side, you kind of don't necessarily need to because, you know, most of our formulations are very hydrating. We do have some more matte formulations. Yeah, most of them have a lot of, you know, hydration benefits to them as well. So this mixture of a sort of cosmetics and skincare with sunscreen, it's just an amazing idea. How did you come up with just that concept? Beck and I had been working at Mecca. So we kind of were front row witnesses of a lot of beauty trends and we could kind of see where the market was going, I guess, probably with a bit more perception than just the average punter. And we kind of noticed that people were starting to take sunscreen a bit more seriously and, and definitely incorporate it into their, their daily skincare routines. I think we were kind of just on the, on the tip of, of that kind of as a skincare movement. Oh, you were prescient. That's what you were. You're both the marketing and brand managers, and and we will explore that more a little later. But, Beck, you are not scientists. You're not chemists. You're not dermatologists. So how did you go about actually making your sunscreen product and coming up with the right formula? That's a really good question, Helen. Really, we'd we'd seen the landscape of Australia of Australian manufacturing in beauty because of where we'd we'd worked and and the kind of roles that we'd done. So we weren't intimidated, I guess, in terms of launching into something where we didn't necessarily have the chemistry in our back pocket. And I think it probably made us stronger for it because we listened to the experts. We came at things from a consumer point of view and we knew what was good. So provided we could find the right chemists and labs to work with, and we knew where to start. So we kind of worked our way through the chemists and the labs in Australia. And because sunscreen is registered with the TGA, there are not a lot of those. So We had a small pool to choose from. We came at it armed with what we knew looked good from a consumer point of view. We were able to really brief in the chemist to create what we wanted. But it must have been an interesting process to go through and finding a chemist, as you say. And of course, what Mm -hmm. you're saying is with TGA approval, and we're all very au fait with the TGA now after COVID and vaccines. Yeah. So when you have an SPF number on the bottle, you can't just make that up. No. You can't just, you know, have a little bit of hyperbole in that. That has to be true. But still, it must have been a really difficult process, was it? Knowing that your formula worked and would be effective against sun and burn, but also that it was a quality product and would work on people's skin. Yeah, and we we didn't leave any of those elements to chance. So there's there's a very rigorous testing regime that takes place in order for you to claim the you know the SPF levels, and we made sure that was all covered. And then equally, and this is probably what does make us different, we put almost equal weighting to one of our friends or one of our friends' friends going to want to put this on their face every single day and put it on their face with a mixture of a, a serum, a moisturizer, um, a primer, like foundation. Over 
over the top. And it was really that secondary part that was equally important to us to test the rigors of daily daily life and daily bathroom life that so that people would want to wear it. And that customers would be mixing all different sorts of things with it. So Ava, do you have a chemist making it up for you sort of in-house or a manufacturer locally, or do you have to go offshore for that? No, it's very important to us that everything is made in Australia and everything is filled in Australia and everything is tested in Australia. We work with both manufacturers to make the bulk um, because an in-house chemist can only make small amounts and we'd only be able to fill probably a handful of tubes, which is not <laughs> not going to get beyond what we give the, the team. So we have a chemist that we work with on formulations. Some are in Melbourne and some are in, in Sydney and Perth actually. And uh, and then we work with a, a variety of TGA approved manufacturers as well to, to kind of fill these commercially. You know, again, we have like we have multiple chemists, we have multiple manufacturers because they specialize in, in different things. So some are better with color products. You know, we've got our tints and our lip balms. Some are better with kind of lighter weight, more fluid formulations, and then others are better with creams. We, we definitely don't have a one-stop shop approach to to our brand and, and how we create and formulate products and fill products for that matter. The manufacturing and the formulation is very, very important to you by the sound of it, Beck. Very important. Yeah, 100% it is. Because at the end of the day, you can't have a brand unless you have a great product. Yeah. Yeah. A quick media search says that you're adept at all things SPF. So for the uninitiated or for those who forget what it actually means, what is SPF and why does it matter and how do you actually get it into a product? Right. Well, SPF is sun protection factor. And in Australia, you can claim um, SPF 30, SPF 50 and SPF 50 plus. And how you get it in a product, it's it's not a magic ingredient. It's a magic combination of SPF actives, they're called. We're fortunate in Australia that the TGA and Nick Nass have approved a number of really great SPF actives that are very modern. They work well in a formulation sense and they work well on the skin. So with our chemists, we select which ones work best for the types of formulations that we're, we're making. And by type, I mean whether it's a very fluid formulation or a mineral-based formulation. You know, there's, there's mineral and chemical types of these SPF actives. It's a great pantry of ingredients that we get to select the right things to, to cook up. Right. But the point is, I guess, for a consumer, it offers protection against the sun's damaging rays. Yeah, absolutely. That's obviously critical and that's it's kind of what the focus of our formulating is. It, it can be as lovely and feel as lovely and we can shove as many skincare actives in there as well. But if it doesn't protect against the sun, we're not doing our jobs and we couldn't call ourselves a sun, a sun care brand. Yeah. So would you say that sun safety is really your driving force or are beauty products your driving force? I think we're we're kind of a combination of both. I think the brand is not one without the other. Obviously, we're a primary sun-focused brand. So if these products aren't protective against the sun and, and people aren't preventing UVA damage and UVB damage by wearing them, there's, there's no point. But equally, if they don't feel beautiful on the skin and they're not a pleasure to wear, you know, we're also not doing our job. So I don't I think we, you know, obviously first and foremost, we are a sun brand coupled with with the beauty element. And and I think, you know, both of those things is, is what makes us really special. Be 
like the name is fabulous. Now it's it's clearly a play on the sun's damaging rays, the UV rays, but it's also a woman's name in French. So how did you come up with the name and, and what does it mean to you guys? Oh, it's always a great story. I love finding this out with other brands as well. But obviously, when you start ideating for a new brand, a name is really critical. And Ava and I spent a really good six months working on a business plan before we decided to even launch into Ultraviolet and, and working on the product development. And at that point, we were we had a load of names up on a whiteboard and we were really thinking very broadly about Sun, but Ultraviolet was the one name that we both loved. And we both thought it made sense. But always with the double T-E ending, the French female name. Trademarking is also a really important part of starting a new brand. And, you know, we thought making it a name would actually make it easier to get the trademark. And then the more we thought about it, it made sense because we wanted our brand to be loved and we wanted to make her a, a central part of the brand. And by having it Violet as part of this brand, it helps personify the brand. And, you know, we talk about Vi a lot. So we've ha- we're having a lot of fun with it, even though it obviously stemmed from, you know, ultraviolet rays. Yeah. Ava, there really are a million sunscreen products on the market. Now, I know you say yours, you know, you feel you nailed this skincare as well as sun care, but what did you have to do to be different to compete? The US entrepreneur Mark Cuban says that startup founders have to find their edge to outmaneuver their competition before they outmaneuver you. Do you have an edge? I think we've got a few edges. I mentioned the formulating side of things is really important to us. We we invest a lot in our formulations. We use the most current innovative SPF actives and filters and also those that you know the skincare ingredients to make sure it feels nice, doesn't ball, doesn't make it break out, all of those things. So that costs money. It, it's not cheap. So we really do invest in our formulations significantly. So I think that is one one element that was really important to us. I think the second thing is brand. You know, I would argue that a lot of those mass I wouldn't necessarily call them our competitors because I think we we kind of operate in a more premium space with a more kind of boutique distribution plan. So some could argue we do the same thing. I, I would kind of call us definitely more of a skincare, premium skincare hybrid brand. And I, I think so we kind of definitely have a tone of voice and brand and use colors and do things that other sun care brands wouldn't do. And I think distribution is a large part of that as well. You know, you can find us where you find, you know, our consumers are buying, you know, their favorite foundation brands. They're buying, Fenty, you know, Rihanna's Fenty. They're buying MAC. They're buying Olaplex. And they're also buying Ultraviolet. So I think that's another thing. And I, and I do think that our packaging also stands out. I guess that relates to brand. I, I think we definitely were really intentional about the shape and what we kind of put our products in, you know, sunscreen belongs in your bathroom. It doesn't belong in your beach bag. And I think that's what a lot of the, you know, mass brands tailor to. They miss out on, don't they? Because they do just sit in the beach bag often. Yeah, they sit in the beach bag. Like I've got memories of mum having five different beach bags and there being a sandy kind of Nivea or a sandy banana boat in each of them. And no one, no one really cared if it got lost yeah. or was thrown out or whatever because it was cheap. You could get it at the supermarket. I don't think people would feel like that about our product, I think, if someone lost theirs or someone stole it or whatever it is. We hear stories about a lot of partners of our consumers stealing their 
the ultraviolet and <laughs> the customer not being very happy about it. Yeah. Well, Beck, it's interesting. Ava mentioned the distribution that that gives you an edge. When you started your own brand, you said you worked on a plan for six months, which is amazing. Were you always going to sell mostly online or did you realise at the very beginning when you did that plan that you would have to try and get the Sephora's, the online marketplaces like Adore, the Iconic, those sorts of places? Yeah, a bit of a bit of both, Helen. Direct to consumer was still, you know, still peaking. I mean, it probably still is when we were planning this brand. And the advantages of direct to consumer and having our own e-commerce channel to us were were huge for two main reasons. Firstly, we'd worked in product development enough to know even with all the testing and even with all of the asking questions, we were still going to need some really good and quick consumer insights. So being as close as we could to the consumer was going to get those insights to us quickly. Right. You mean immediate engagement and they would speak back to you. That's right. And, and in the first year of launching, we did lots of tweaking based on that uh, on that feedback, such as lowering the fragrance. We increased the SPF on our lip balms. We completely overhauled Clean Screen, one of our products, and, and, and started again. So those consumer insights were really valuable. And it's amazing. I guess people are so used to shopping online, but what you're doing when you're shopping online is you're really giving that business a real window into your shopping habits. And and for us as the brand, as well as the dist- distributor in that sense, it was really valuable for us to have those insights. But then similarly working with Adore Beauty, who was our first retailer. So how difficult was it to get them on board or to get you on board with them? Yeah, I think it was probably the latter because they came to us before we'd even launched and, and they'd heard about the brand. Oh, wow. They really had their finger on the pulse. And and we were determined in having our own e-com channel for a year first. We wanted those insights ourselves. And Adore convinced us that they had really good authority in skincare. And even back in our days at Mecca, we knew that Adore had really good authority in skin. So they were we were easy to be convinced because we knew that uh, being ranged on Adore was going to give Give us a real stamp of approval. And similarly, Sephora brought a really important mix to us because so many people have been burned by sunscreen physically and you know emotionally. And we knew that have some customers would never trust buying this product online. So we needed to have a really great retailer with a bricks and mortar presence around the country that customers could go and try the product in person before they buy it as well as online. So it was having that good mix across all of those channels. And we think we've got it pretty right for now. Ava, when you sold your very first product, how did you build an online audience? How did you turn them into consumers? Was Instagram really crucial in those early days? Did you use influencers? Did you buy audience? Did you buy ads? I still actually remember the first sale. Yeah, tell us about it. It was actually another beauty brand founder called Mava, and um, she's created a really amazing brand called Bread. So uh, she hadn't launched Bread at that point, but she was being, you know, the amazing supportive friend that she is. And and we weren't even friends actually at that point. So anyway, it was just very nice that I remember it. But um, we had launched our Instagram probably a month prior. We kind of just spent quite a bit of time building that up very organically. No paid followers, no, you know, paid influencers, nothing paid. We didn't have the budget. <laughs> uh, we were very lean. We had friends who are journalists and Lee Campbell, who is an amazing writer 
and one of the executive editors that Mamma Mia, I told her about the idea kind of six months prior to us launching and she said, you know, tell me when you're ready to launch and I'll support you. So she written this fantastic article and called us, you know, next cult Australian brand. It was so exciting. But that that kind of article drove a lot of people to our site and, and created a lot of hype. It's amazing, isn't it? Just on that score, I notice in the various media that you've had since, the word cult and your brand comes up a lot. So if you can get that marketing and that that branding right at the beginning, often journalists just follow suit. Oh, yeah, it's right. And look, I remember getting, I think, Beck, we were talking about it. We had chills, I think, like goosebumps reading that because we were like, imagine, (laughs) imagine if that actually happened. Yeah. So, Ava, your mum is a well-known and respected fashion stylist. I don't want to say that, you know, she opened all the doors by any means, but was she a sounding board at all? Was she able to give you some some contacts, even though you had been in the beauty industry for a while? Um, I think kind of I grew up in the industry to an extent. Obviously, as you said, she's fashion and there is overlap between beauty and fashion, but it is also quite separate in a way. So, she definitely helped me in my very early days just through growing up with people and I had relationships with publicists and, mm. and various journalists and through her. She's definitely not in the beauty industry. so no. And we should say she is Nicole Bernathan. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so she's uh, a lot of yeah. people listening would know her. Anyway. She did support, but she still, um, she actually styles our campaign. So she's definitely involved on that level and she's obviously a, a huge supporter of the brand and likes to gift it to her various industry friends. I, yeah, get, a, I get a few emails saying, can you send me some more product? I'm seeing I'm styling, you know, this person and that person. I'm working with this person and that makeup artist and they didn't need the – so she's oh, definitely well out there. well done. So she's getting yeah. it in there and she's out there. She's spruiking. She's yeah. definitely spruiking. <laughs> yeah. So, Beck, how did you fund it in the very early stages? Did you did you use your own savings? Did you beg and borrow from family? <laughs> did a bank come into the scene? Yeah, both of us, we've funded it completely ourselves and wow. um, from a mix of savings and, and family and remortgages and all, all that type of stuff. So so you've mortgaged a house for it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We we put everything on the line. So, and also quit well-paying jobs <laughs> to, <Yeah. laughs> to do this. So, you know, I think everyone talks about how did you fund it to get going, but then how do you keep a lifestyle and, you know, school fees going is probably the other yeah. part yeah. to that question. So, yeah, it's, we, we put everything on the line and um, we believed in it from the beginning. Okay, a few sort of quickish questions. Can you remember what sort of sales you did in that, say, first month, Beck? Like, are we talking, you know, were you lucky to get a couple (laughs) of thousand dollars worth of sales or did you suddenly take off? I mean, was it very challenging in the beginning? Do you know, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I, I know that they blew our minds yeah. and and we were really... As in positive? Positively, yeah. We wow. were really blown away with how, how, how positive the sales were. And, you know, a great story from that first day when we first launched, the first few sales came through and I'd said, Ava, do you know that person? She's like, yeah, I know that person. The next one, oh, yeah, that's my cousin. Oh, no, that's my auntie. Or that's someone I, I know. And then the sales came in of people that we didn't know. And that was the most bizarre thing of, hang on, I how did this person find us? I don't know who that person was. And that was a really beautiful moment of, oh my goodness, maybe people that we don't know are talking about this. So it kind of started from the beginning. We haven't had a single day since we've launched here or in the UK without a sale. 
So what sort of growth have you seen? Oh, it's it's just been it's been fantastic. So I mean, obviously we've added retailers, we've added products. So you know we've ha- we've had a couple of hundred percent growth in the first year, and that's continued year after year. Wow. So Ava, how was that scale up? Because if you had a, a couple of hundred percent, I mean, growth in the first year or so, that obviously came off a relatively low base. Yeah. But how did you manage that scale up? Was it oh my God, we've just suddenly got to get our website better, get this in play, get the manufacturing, get the warehouse organised, get the posting out better or the distribution better, or was it all relatively gradual, the scale up? It was kind of, obviously there were days and months where it didn't feel manageable, but I think if you look at it over a year, it, it kind of was manageable. And I think we scaled up Appropriately, as Beck said, you know, we own this business 100%. We haven't taken investment yet, despite, you know, having many, many, many conversations. But we've kind of done it at a speed that feels, I guess, comfortable for us with the team that we've got and the resources that we've got. But, you know, 200%, as you said, on a small base isn't, you know, it's that's manageable. It's like it's now when we're getting kind of years like we had last year and this year and adding 200% growth that way we're kind of like, okay, this is kind of big. And I think Beck and I, we definitely kind of sit and take stock very often and, and we kind of look at, you know, we reassess what the business needs and, you know, where we might need to add people or money or whatever it is. I think we're never in a situation where we're like, holy hell, like this is just run away from us. Adding 17 markets to the brand and to our retail partnerships might do that. So (laughs) you get us back for part two, stay tuned. (laughs) Um, Oh, that's amazing. Well, look, I do want you to come back for part two. I want to ask you about the impact of COVID and, and how you guys actually met and got together in the first place. So stay with us and we'll see you for part two. Thank you, Helen. Thanks, Helen. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.